Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Bring me shelter, I will not harm you. Bring me shelter, please. Bring me shelter, I will not harm you. I would shelter you. People would do anything for their families. It could happen to anyone anytime. Somebody in France, somebody in England basically sat down with a ruler and just drew lines on that. There are many different ethnic and religious groups that have been divided across borders and this has caused a significant amount of conflict. There are a lot of people who need safety. It is really cruel for a country like Australia to have policies that are focused only on pushing people away. What we're seeing is a number of people that remain in a state of limbo. And when non-sustainable land use combines with climate change, the crisis of refugees... I wasn't able to go and play with children. I had to go and really be an adult from a very young age. I think that's something that a lot of migrant children can relate to. Really, it was a dream for me to reunite with my family. I was just praying and hoping that that day will come one day. I think it's very important for people to understand that people have their own dreams as well and they're wanting to change the world with everybody else. Refugee Radio, 855 AM, 3CR. A kairu loruman lay beneath a flat-topped acacia tree, its latticework of branches casting a soft mesh of shade upon his body. He wore a silver earring and khaki shorts and lay on the side with his arm twisted awkwardly beneath him. The left side of Akaru's forehead was gone, blown away by the exit of a bullet. His blood formed a greasy black slick on the desert floor. His sandals, shawl and gun had been stolen. Akaru had been a pastoralist from the Takana tribe, who live in northwest Kenya on the arid savannas of the Rift Valley. He had been killed the day before when a neighbouring tribe, the Pokot, had launched a massive cattle raid. Akaru's corpse lay here on the ground, exposed to the elements, with goats and sheep browsing nearby. Because the Takana do not bury people killed in raids... Oh, sorry. Because the Takana do not bury people killed in raids, they believe doing so is bad luck, that it will only invite more attacks. So they leave their dead to decompose where they fall. But these supernatural precautions will not hold the enemy at bay, for profound social and climatological forces drive them forth. The group of Takana I was visiting had been pushed south by severe drought and were now grazing their herds at the edge of their traditional range, very close to their enemies, the Pokot. In the pastoralist corridor of East Africa, a basic pattern is clear. During times of drought, water and grazing become scarce, and the the herds fall ill, and many cattle die. To replenish stocks, young men raid their neighbours. The onset of anthropogenic climate change means Kenya is seeing rising temperatures and more frequent drought. Yet overall, it is actually receiving greater amounts of precipitation. The problem is, the rain now arrives erratically, in sudden violent, violent bursts, all at once, rather than gradually over a season. This means eroding floods, followed by drought. The clockwork rains upon which Kenyan agriculture and society depends are increasingly out of sync. Why did Akaru Loruman die? 
what forces compelled his murder. Akaru, who had been about 35 years old, had three wives, eight children, and about 50 head of cattle. He had been an important and powerful man in his community, a warrior in his prime, old enough to have plenty of experience and wisdom, but still young and strong enough to run and fight for days on little food and water. And now he was dead. We could say tradition killed Akaru, the age-old tradition of stock theft, cattle raiding among the Nilotic tribes of East Africa. Or we could say he was murdered by a specific man, a pocot from Karasuk. Or that Akaru was killed by the drought. When the drought gets bad, the raiding picks up. Or perhaps Akaru was killed by forces yet larger, forces transcending the specifics of this regional drought, this raid, this geography, and the Nilotic cattle cultures. To my mind, while walking through the desert among the Takana warriors scanning the Karasu hills for the Pokot War Party, it seemed clear that Akaru's death was caused by the most colossal set of events in human history, the catastrophic convergence of poverty, violence, and climate change. So begins Christian Parenti's Tropic of Chaos, Climate Change and the New Geography of Violence. In the book, Christian Parenti attempts to sketch out some of the patterns of violence and disruption climate change is expected to bring to the world's most vulnerable regions. Today on, on um, Refugee Radio, we're going to explore a topic that we have looked into in previous ep- episodes, that is climate migration, the effect of projected climate change on human displacement. Before we continue, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which 3CR is broadcast, and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Between the Tropic of Capricorn and the Tropic of Cancer lies what Christian Parenti calls the Tropic of Chaos, a belt of economically and politically battered post-colonial states, girding the planet's mid-latitudes. In this band, around the tropics, Climate change is beginning to hit hard. The societies in this belt are also heavily dependent on agriculture and fishing, thus very vulnerable to shifts in weather patterns. According to a Swedish government study, there are 46 countries, home to 2.7 billion people, in which the effects of climate change interacting with economic, social and political problems will create a high risk of violent conflict. The study's list covers that same terrain, those mid-latitudes that are now being most affected by the onset of anthropogenic climate change. Conflict, natural disaster, food shortages, loss of arable land, flooded coastal areas, all mean displacement. The creation of what some people have labelled as climate refugees. Environment scholar Norman Myers says that the consequence of large numbers of climate refugees will most likely be among the most significant of all upheavals entrained by global warming. In the report, Migration and Mobility, Dimensions of Human Security, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, more commonly known as the IPCC, summarised the major findings of the climate migration literature, literature as follows. Climate change will have significant impacts on forms of migration that compromise human security. Major extreme weather events have in the past led to significant population displacement, and changes in the incidence of extreme events will amplify the challenges and risks of such displacement. Many vulnerable groups do not have the resources to be able to migrate and to avoid the impacts of floods, storms and droughts. Migration and mobility are adaptation strategies in all regions of the world that experience climate variability. Specific populations that lack the ability to move 
also face higher exposure to weather-related extremes, particularly in rural and urban areas in low- and middle-income countries. Expanding opportunities for mobility can reduce vulnerability to climate change and enhance human security. In 1990, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change predicted that the gravest effects of climate change may be those on human migration, increasing storms, droughts, flooding, proliferation of pathogens, and rising sea level levels will wreak havoc upon the world's urbanized coastlines and agricultural economies. This suggests a future in which millions of people will be on the move. A one-meter rise in sea level will inundate terrain currently housing about 10% of the world's population. Many other people living far from the sea on semi-arid ag- agricultural lands will also be unable to adapt and forced to move. <clears throat> um, I think those stats about one metre of sea rise were from Christian Parenti, who wrote that a one metre sea level rise in two, uh, 2100 was almost inevitable. Um, but I think I had a look into it, and the IPCC's most recent report on oceans in the cryosphere reports that in a worst-case emission scenario, a sea level rise of between 61 centimetres and 1.1 metre is now likely by 2100. Okay. As early as 2001, the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies reported that more people were being forced to leave their homes because of environmental disasters than war. By 2050, global population is expected to peak at 9 billion, and at current emissions trajectories, global temperatures could be close to 2 degrees centigrade Celsius hotter than today, or more. The question of the impact on human migration is still uncertain, as nearly anything over 30 years into the future is. When I interviewed Dr Celia McMichael from the University of Melbourne's School of Geography recently, she told me that, there are hugely varying estimates about the scale and quantification of the number of people who will be displaced by climate risks into the future. It's very common to read estimates of hundreds of millions who will be displaced by mid-century, but estimates have gone as high as a billion or more and as low as tens of millions. Dr McMichael's statement is backed up by a report from the International Organisation for Migration, which stated that current estimates range between 25 million and 1 billion people by 2050. Dr. McMichael explained the difficulties with reaching a high level of confidence with predictions. Essentially, you take data sets of populations living in low-lying areas and then, looked at predict- and then look at predicted sea level rise based on our current emissions trajectory. But you'll get different numbers based on which data set you use, and of course, the emissions trajectory is still an unknown factor. What's more, it's very hard to generate a, ro- a robust number that takes into account people's ability to adapt, to build seawalls, to raise the height of homes, to move away in the event of a flood, for example, and then return. So essentially, all these numbers are quite rubbery. If you want to see some of the projected numbers, just Google the phrase climate refugees or climate migration 2050, and you can quite easily find some of the statistics. the inhumane treatment of all the refugees on Manus Island and Nauru. They need to be able to come to Australia where it's safe and to settle here. They have all been deemed to be uh, legitimate refugees. 
we are not an inhumane society. We need to give them the ability to to settle here. listening to Refugee Radio on 3CR Community Radio, and today we're talking about climate migration. It should be obvious enough, but displacement of people caused by climate change is not something that Western countries and temperate zones are immune from. As John Weniston and Denise Robbins write in Rising Tides, Climate Refugees in the 21st Century, Hurricane Katrina in the US turned hundreds of thousands of New Orleans residents into climate refugees. In August 2005, Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans and the Gulf Coast with a 28-foot storm surge that left only a few structures along the coast standing. New Orleans survived the initial hit, but was heavily flooded. As levees were breached, the swirling waters flooded neighbourhoods, leaving people stranded on rooftops. All told, during the course of the storm, over one million people were evacuated from New Orleans and small towns in rural and resort coastal areas. After the storm subsided, it was widely assumed in the media and among government agencies that people who left New Orleans and other towns along the coast would return to reclaim their homes and rebuild their flood-stricken lives. Several hundred thousand did not. They had neither job nor home to return to. Thus, hundreds of thousands of Americans had transitioned from the role of evacuees to that of climate refugees. Climate justice essayist Mary Anais Hegler calls Hurricane Katrina the first big US-based climate migration. It was nothing but a harbinger, she writes. Hegler wrote a touching piece recently for Guernica magazine titled After the Storm, in which she talks about how Hurricane Katrina and the murder of Emmett Till shaped her commitment to climate justice. We'll start with an excerpt. The swamp reclaimed the city. Snakes and alligators and fish swam in equal terror through swallowed neighbourhoods, only the roofs peeking out. I grew up in the Mississippi River region, which is to say I grew up in both the shadow and the embrace of New Orleans. We had Mardi Gras parades, and it was easy enough to find king cake. It wasn't unusual to see ATMs with French as a language option. If the day was clear enough, we could point the antenna just right and get New Orleans radio stations that played the newest Master P, Hot Boys and DJ Jubilee before we heard them anywhere else. It was devastating to see these people whom I'd always known to be as generous with their culture as they are with their laughter, suffer so hideously. We'd always known that New Orleans was unlike any other place in the country, or the world, but we never thought we'd see New Orleanians referred to as refugees in their own country. It was as heartbreaking as it was unbelievable. Katrina's refugees settled mostly in Texas, 
as John Wenniston and Denise Robbins write, a new and unfamiliar environment. Given that these climate refugees were poor African-American or aged, they were not exactly welcomed enthusiastically in Texas. The state was already in the grip of a nativist localist mentality because of large numbers of legal and illegal immigrants from Mexico and Latin America generally in their midst. Houston absorbed most of the refugees and at times suffered from compassion fatigue. But a 2007 survey of 765 Houston area residents by Rice University sociologist Stephen Kleinberg found that three-fourths believed that helping the refugees put a, quote, considerable strain on the community, and two-thirds blamed evacuees for a surge in violent crime. Half thought Houston would be worse off if evacuees stayed, while one-fourth thought the city would be better off. Of course, many will immediately cast out on the possibility that Hurricane Katrina was caused or worsened by climate change. And obviously, it's often not possible to look at highly complex phenomena like hurricanes or cyclones and say climate change was the lone perpetrator responsible for them. But there are still ways for scientists to get some idea of the role of warming in hurricane activity and particular storms through other approaches. A 2013 study published in the journal Climatic Change found that Katrina's impact on the Gulf Coast would have been significantly less damaging under the climate and sea level conditions of 1900 when its storm surge would have been anywhere from 15 to 60% lower. Essentially, the study illustrates that sea level rise has so far been the clearest link that can be made between climate change and storms today. Like its effect on hurricane activity, rising sea levels will likely be one of climate climate change's most significant effects on human displacement. In 2007, the IPCC predicted that sea levels could rise by an average of 7 to 23 inches during this century. As I mentioned earlier, the most recent IPCC report on oceans in the cryosphere suggested that under a worst-case emission scenario, a sea level rise of between 61 centimetre and 1.1 metre is now likely by 2100. Although the rise could be substantially higher, Antarctic ice disappears faster, the report says, with recent research suggesting a rise of as much as two metres if that eventuates. The impact of such sea level rises on coastal communities would be enormous. A study published in the, Nature Communica- in the journal Nature Communications a few weeks ago says that land that is currently home to 300 million people will flood at least once a year by 2050 unless carbon emissions are cut significantly and coastal defences strengthened. And the authors of this report say that calculations could still underestimate the dangers because they are based on standard projections of sea level rise in a scenario known as RCP 2.6, which assumes emissions emissions cuts in line with the promises made under the Paris Agreement. But of course, current countries are currently not on course to meet those pledges. <clears throat> the study revised upwards previous estimates, and the biggest change in estimates was in Asia which, as we know, is the continent home to the majority of the world's population. The numbers at risk of an annual flood by 2050 increased more than eightfold in Bangladesh, sevenfold in India, twelvefold in Thailand, and threefold in, in China. Let's take Bangladesh as an example, as it is a country that, that's extremely vulnerable to climate change. The Ganges Delta, a region that consists of most of Bangladesh, is one of the most densely populated parts of the world, Bangladesh holds 165 million people in an area smaller than Victoria. According to my, perhaps, dubious online calculations, the land size of Bangladesh is around 60% of Victoria. 
For reference, the population of Australia is not even 25 million, compared to Bangladesh's 165 million. One third of its citizens live along the southern coast in a meshwork of island villages, farms and fish ponds, connected by protective embankments. Most of the country's land area is very low-lying, <clears throat> and during the rainy season, more than one-fifth of the country can be flooded at once. For tens of thousands of years, people living in the Ganges Delta accepted a volatile, dangerous landscape of floods and tropical storms, as the cost of access to rich agricultural soil and lucrative maritime trade routes. However, climate change is disrupting traditional rain patterns. Droughts in some areas, unexpected de deluges in others and boosting a silt-heavy runoff from glaciers in the Himalaya, the Himalaya Mountains upstream, leading to an increase in flooding and riverbank erosion. Meanwhile, sea level rise is pushing salt water into coastal agricultural areas and promising to permanently submerge large swaths of coastal areas. A report released in January of this year by the US Government Accountability Office quoted Tasneem Siddiqui, a political scientist who leads the Refugee and Migratory Movements Research Unit at the University of Dhaka, as saying, Right now, the government's vision is to have no vision. It's just that everything is in Dhaka, and people are coming to Dhaka, and Dhaka is collapsing. People have always coped with flooding, and they learned how to cope with death, but with climate change, many of the damages are permanent. VCR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to more than a community radio. Please subscribe now. Just a moment, community radio araja al istrakel an. Ningal ungalin samuhavanali trisiarai kertu kondir kondir kal. Rinre nayingal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Netsuketsek Radio y Gairanin, Oretangudam Elbumihai Kaotin, Himartanakrevetsek Ipertrisiari Antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. In the stories of Akaru Loriman of Kenya and the citizens of New Orleans and Bangladesh, we can see some of the new challenges that the climate crisis brings. Firstly, the challenge to the definition of a refugee, first established in the 1951 UN Convention. Consider the case of Ioni Teotiota, a man from the Pacific Island nation of Kiribati who applied for asylum in New Zealand in 2010 on the basis that rising sea levels were slowly swallowing the land under his feet. His claim was denied because he didn't fit the existing legal definitions of a refugee. The same holds with other Pacific Islanders who have been seeking status as environmental migrants in Australia and New Zealand since at least the year 2000. The problem for Te Teota and others wasn't that immigration officials didn't believe climate change was happening. It was that systems designed in the 1950s simply aren't accommodating the needs of the modern world. Simply put, the Refugee Convention does not cover those displaced by climate. It defines a refugee as any person who, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion, is outside the country of his or her nationality and is unable to, or owing to such fear, is unwilling to avail himself or herself of the protection of that country. Climate refugees, in other words, don't exist. 
at least not from the perspective of the current legal apparatus. So should we be campaigning for the inclusion of people displaced by climate into the provisions of the Refugee Convention? Civil society actors in Australia have joined international lobbies pressuring governments to recognise climate refugees. Several years ago, a publication by Friends of the Earth and Climate Justice argues that Australia has a disproportionate responsibility for creating them, seeing as we produce seeing as we have about 0.03% of the world's population but, produces, but, but produce about, around 1.4% of the world's greenhouse gases, and hence an onus to recognise them officially as a separate category of refugee. However, the idea of, a, of the creation of a legal category of a, refuge, of a climate refugee is disputed. <coughs> Dina Ionesco, the head of Mi- the Migration, Environment and Climate Change Division at the UN Migration Agency, says that we should be talking about climate migrants, not climate refugees. She writes that, although it might seem paradoxical in this context not to encourage the establishment of a climate-specific legal status parallel to the existing refugee status, establishing a climate refugee status could lead to a narrow and biased debate and would provide only partial solutions to address the complexity of human mobility and climate change. The image of climate refugees resonates metaphorically to all as it mirrors the current images we see of those escaping wars and conflicts. With the threat of climate change, we imagine millions becoming refugees in the future. Yet reducing the issue of migration in the context of climate change to the status of climate refugees fails to recognise a number of key aspects that define human mobility in the context of climate change and environmental degradation. Some of these reasons include... The fact that, in, <clears throat> that isolating environment or climatic reasons is difficult, in particular from a humanitarian, political, social conflict or economic, in particular from humanitarian, political, social conflict, social conflict or economic ones. It can sometimes be an impossible task and may lead to long and unrealistic legal procedures. Creating a special refugee status for climate change-related reasons might unfortunately have the opposite effects of what is sought as a solution. It could lead to the exclusion of categories of people who are in need of protection, especially the poorest migrants who move because of a mix of factors and would not be able to prove the link to climate and environmental factors. Opening the 1951 Refugee Convention might weaken the refugee status, which would be tragic given the state of our world where so many people are in need of protection because of persecution and ongoing conflicts. And finally, creating a new convention might be a lengthy political process and countries might not have an appetite for it. Oh, and there's one more. Well, I think there's a list of 10, but it's just a few I picked out. Regular migration pathways can provide relevant protection for climate migrants and facilitate migration strategies in response to environmental factors. Many migration management solutions are available to respond to challenges posed by climate change, environmental degradation and disasters in terms of international migratory movements, and can provide a status for people who move in the context of climate change impacts such as humanitarian visas, temporary protection, authorization to stay, regional and bilateral free movements agreements, among several others. However, even if people displaced by climate don't neatly fit into the legal category of a refugee, there is still an argument for using the term, as John Weniston and Denise Robbins write. Since no one can escape the weather, everyone's movement is always already climatic in some abstract sense, even in exceptional circumstances. It may be impossible to distinguish climate refugees from others who might have left otherwise. Migrating tends not to be an option for all. The poorest often cannot afford to leave. 
but even if they do not neatly fit into our, into our analytical categories or models, in a rapidly warming world, there is no moral alternative to giving them much greater attention, to giving much greater attention to climate refugees. We need a robust political language defending the right of people to migrate in anticipation or in reaction to climate change.